It's a joy to be here this morning, and I do want to just take a short moment to pray. Lord, as we, your people come to you this morning, and we look at this psalm of lament, I pray that you will help us. Holy Spirit, I ask that you will use my voice, my broken voice, broken words to honor you. Pray that you will quicken your word to all of our hearts, that we will understand it clearly, that we will hear what you want to say to us today. Not me, but you. So we need you, Lord. Help us now. We pray in your name. Amen. I pray that, church, not because I uh, have a, what's that? Is it loud? Is it good? I pray it just, not just because it has to be done, but because I really need God's help when I pray. And you really need God's help, as do I, to hear God's word. Without him, we will not hear his word well. Not sure how many of you know the word David Brainerd. David Brainerd was an American missionary to the Native Americans, and he was particularly fruitful in his preaching to the Delaware Indians in New Jersey. David Brainerd was a man who was very familiar with hardship and suffering. It's not so much that he was familiar with one event of hardship and suffering. It was more like his life was a life of hardship and suffering. He was born in 1718 in Connecticut. And when he was nine years old, his father passed away. When he was 14 years old, his mother passed away. So he was orphaned at 14. He then moved to one of his nine siblings, one of his sisters, lived with her for a couple of years when he went to Yale to study to become a pastor. In his second year at Yale, he was sent home because he was suffering from what they called a serious illness that caused him to spit blood. He had tuberculosis. Brainerd was expelled in the same year because he criticized a professor. After serving a church in Long Island for a few years, he, in 1743, went and became a missionary to the Native Americans, a period that just compiled the hardship on him. He continued to suffer from tuberculosis. He also had a immobilizing depression, and he suffered from what many missionaries suffered from at the time, loneliness, uh, being poor, struggling even to get good food to eat. He was only 29 years when he passed away, yet he made an amazing impact on Christianity. This man was familiar with spiritual and mental and emotional and relational and physical suffering like, like not many other people. He knew pain and he journaled much and his laments are numerous. But there's one particular quote from him that always amazes me. 
This man who knew pain said this. When I really enjoy God, I feel my desire of him the more insatiable. And my thirstings after holiness the more unquenchable. Oh, for holiness. Oh, for more of God in my soul. Sounds so, sounds so holy. But that's only half of the quote. Listen to the rest of his quote. This is the rest. Oh, this pleasing pain. It makes my soul press after God. Oh, that I might never loiter on my heavenly journey. Oh, this pleasing pain makes my soul press after God. It kind of leaves me speechless when I hear that and I know who he is and how he suffered. And I want to ask the question, why could a man who suffered so intensely have these words, calling his pain and his suffering this pleasing pain? And although we may come up with many reasons why he could do this, I believe there's one overarching reason that he could say this. And I believe that he could say his suffering was pleasing pain because of God's steadfast love in his life. It is not Brainerd's commitment or his resolve or his spiritual strength and maturity that sustained him in his suffering. It was God's steadfast love. And as we look at Psalm 6 this morning, we're going to see that it is the same for David and it is the same for you and for me. It is not our commitment and our spiritual maturity that will sustain us in the midst of our troubles and our heartaches in this life. It is God's sustaining, satisfying love that will sustain us every day. And so Psalm 6 has all the markings of a psalm of lament. Matthew last week gave those four elements that is present in Psalm 5. They are also present in Psalm 6. We come before God. We pour out our lament. We declare our trust in God and we ask him to intervene in the situation. And although there are different ways to look at Psalm 6... I felt that specifically this morning we're going to look at Psalm 6 inside this framework of those four points. Because I believe that if we can get a grasp of these four points, that it will help us in our personal lament. Now I have to say here, you have to guard that this does not become a cookie cutter. This is not a form that I go through step one, two, three, four, and then I lament. But this is a framework, this is a help for us to understand what biblical lament looks like so that we can personally lament. And if we seek to humbly apply these points, we will be less prone to sin in grumbling and more likely to honor God in a true lament. I think it's beneficial for us to look at these points this morning. And so the four main points that I'm going to make are called humble approach, faithful lament, courageous petition, and comforting trust. The first two words that David speaks in this psalm shows us his response to suffering 
shows us who he turns to, who he approaches in his own distress. He cries out to God, O Lord, is what David cries. He knows that he needs God desperately in his time of need because only the Lord can comfort him, can sustain him, and can deliver him from the troubles that he is facing. And in fact, in in the first four verses, five times David cries out those two words, O Lord, and he, he shows us where he turns and where we should turn in our times of distress. This fact, Friends, the fact that David turned to God in his distress is not trivial. You and I on any given day has many options. We have many options where to turn to when we are faced with calamity and distress and trials. They're not all good choices, but they are choices nonetheless. We can be angry because of trials. And we can sin in our anger by slandering and grumbling and venting. We can lash out against our enemies, often people that we think are responsible for our trials. We can have a quiet endurance of our trials. Good luck. We can wallow in self-pity. We can try and fix our trials in all kinds of ways. But you know, church, those approaches, all of those approaches are selfish prideful approaches because they are me-focused and they are trial-focused. What David shows us is something completely different. He shows us to go to God. His, his approach, his takeoff, oh Lord, is God-centered. It says, Lord, I cannot endure this without you. I cannot be sustained in this trial without you. And I will not experience relief if you do not do this for me. This is his example. You see, this, this psalm, Psalm 6, is a psalm of lament. But it is one more thing. It is also a psalm of penitence. This psalm begins with an urgent appeal for relief from chastening. He says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. These words indicate strongly that his current sufferings was God's chastening. And so the words, rebuke me not in your anger, and, nor discipline me in your wrath, is a confession of sin. David humbly approaches God to confess his sin. There, there are humble words. These are humble words. He says, rebuke me not in your anger and discipline me not in your wrath. David was not resisting God, church. Have to hear this. David was not resisting what God was doing. He is humbly asking for God to lighten the load of discipline that he is feeling. Now, I have to do time out right here because I... I know the tendency, what people will be thinking. Let me say this here. Please know that not all suffering is a result of God's discipline. So please don't hear me say this morning that if you are in a time of trial or suffering, that it is because you have sinned and God is disciplining you. It may be so. 
And you and I as Christians regularly have to look at our lives and ask the Holy Spirit to show us our lives to see if there is unrepentant, willful sin that we do. And so maybe there may be trials that is a discipline from God, not to break us, but to turn us to Him. But please hear that not all suffering is a result of sin. And so we see David's gaze here. David's gaze is on God as he humbly asks him to be gracious to him and for healing him because he was languishing. And then we get to verse 3 and we see these words. It seems like he was busy speaking and then he stopped. He says, but you, O Lord, how long? But you, O Lord, how long? What David is saying is, you, Lord, you only can help me and sustain me and deliver me. And therefore, I come to you. But Lord, how long will this continue? How long? How long am I going to ask? How long are you going to test me? Are you going to allow this trial to be on my life? How long, Lord? And if you have ever been in a trial and you've cried out to God, you've probably used those words. Lord, how long? Can you deliver me now, please? Can you take the pain away now, please? And we'll see those words as we go through this series of Psalms of Lament. We're going to see those, those words again. Lord, how long? It is a cry to God to not allow the difficulty to last too long. But church, let me ask you this morning, what do you do in your suffering and your distress? This is a, a question you have to answer and I have to answer honestly to ourselves before the Lord. When you suffer, greatly suffer from severe loss, do you respond in doubt or in anger or in self-pity, or in resentment, or in accusations? Or do you cry out like David, O oh Lord, you do I trust, you do I come to, to you do I humbly submit? There's a big change, there's a big difference between O oh Lord and resentment, church. Jesus is uh, our example. In 1 Peter 2, verse 23, there's the well-known verse that says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It's an amazing example for you and for me. When Jesus suffered, he entrusted himself to the Father, to him who judges justly. And as we follow him, his example, we are to do the same. We are to continue entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly. 
And so I want to encourage you today, do not let doubt and anger and self-pity and resentment and accusations rule your heart in suffering. Rather, go to God in humility and trust yourself to him. O oh, Lord God, you, O oh Lord, you are the only one who can help me. I do not want to be angry or resentful. I want to humbly submit my life to you. And then we bring to him our humble lament. We see David's lament in Psalm 6. In verses 2 and 3, we see he is languishing. He says, my bones are troubled and my soul is greatly troubled. And then in verse 6 and 7, look there with me, is the main part of his lament. I am weary with my, groan, with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. He was broken and hurting. And David was pouring out a lament. His cries before God to save and sustain his life. David was complaining, but David was not grumbling. Now, there is a difference, church. This is not just a difference in semantics. There is a difference. There is a faithful way to complain, a humble, believing way to complain before God. And there is a faithless way to complain. It is a prideful, unbelieving way to complain before God. And the Bible often refers to that faithless complaining, that unbelieving complaining as grumbling. And it warns us not to, to grumble. Grumbling is serious, church. In Numbers 14, we see when the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, and he said, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel which they grumble against me. And a little later he says, not one shall come into the land where I swore I would make you dwell. He kept them from going into the promised land because they grumbled against him. So why did he do that, church? Why, why is grumbling so serious then? Well, grumbling is serious for at least, there may be many more, but at least two reasons. First, grumbling doubts God. Did you hear what it says in Numbers? I heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumbled against me. Grumbling is against God. It doubts God. Grumbling says that I do not believe, God, that you are who you say you are. I do not believe that you are good, that you are faithful, that you are loving, that you are wise, that you are powerful, and that you are competent. And therefore, I grumble against you. By contrast, what David does is faithful complaining that does not challenge God for being or doing something wrong. It is an honest 
groaning expression of what it is like to experience trouble and anguish and grief in this full fallen world that you and I are living in. And God does not mind this kind of complaining. In fact, he, he teaches us how. Hence the Psalms of Lament. Psalm 142 says, With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. And so what we see David doing here is pouring out a complaint before God. But it is a complaint without an indictment against God. This, church, is a faithful lament. This is what we see David doing. And such a lament glorifies God. It glorifies God because it says, I have these struggles and sufferings and pain, and I cannot hold up under the pressure, O Lord. But I will not indict you that you are not good and faithful and able. You will sustain me in this. Your steadfast love can and will sustain me. That is a faithful lament. See, a second issue with grumbling, first issue is that it is doubting against God. The second issue is that it is often done in anger. Now, the question is, can I be angry? Shouldn't I be angry when there is sin against me? Yes. When there is injustice done against us, we can be angry. When you are fired from your job with no reason, when your child is molested, or when you are racially profiled, that is unfair, it is injustice, and you can be angry at that sin that is committed against you. But the question we have to answer in lamenting is, is it okay for me to be angry at God in my lament? And I wonder if I take a poll this morning what the answer should be, what the answer will be from the congregation. I want to warn you, church, that we do not have the right to be angry at God. Church, our God is a holy and merciful and loving and perfect and blameless God. We are talking here about the creator of heaven and earth. We are talking about the God who sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to leave the glories of heaven, to come to this earth, to live among us a sinless life. And so that that son of his could go to the cross to be beaten, to be spat upon, to be ridiculed, and to be hung on a cross, to die there in your place and in my place, so that in eternity we will not have to face God's wrath, so that today we do not have to face God's wrath. That's what he did for us. There, there has never been anybody who has loved you more than that God. There will never be anybody who will love you as much as God. 
He has taken care of our biggest problem ever. And for you and me to think that in this vapor of a life that we live now, facing the troubles that we face now, we have the right to confront in anger this holy, amazing God who took care of our biggest problem ever. It cannot be, church. It cannot be. Listen to Revelation. There are many scriptures like this all over the, world, the, the Bible. Listen to Revelation 4. We read of the four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. We read of them also in Isaiah 6, how they covered their eyes and covered their feet. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created church the angels and the elders who are in God's presence they cover themselves they fall down they throw their crowns before him and they worship this glorious God that we serve. We cannot just flippantly think that we can be angry at this God. He's the ruler of everything. He holds our life in his hand every second of every day. Our only posture, our only posture before God should be one of humility and reverence and worship. So now the question is, what if I struggle, Josh? What if I struggle that I do get angry with God? Well, there are two things. Here's the good news. He is slow to anger and abundant in steadfast love. Thank you, God. When we are angry, when you feel angry at him, there are two things I want to encourage you to do. One, go to him in humility and repent. Lord, I'm sorry that I want to indict you, that I want to be angry at you. Forgive me. And two, ask him to give you a clear vision of who he is. Because if we know who he is, if we understand who our holy God is, then there will be a much smaller desire in our hearts to be angry at him. He is an amazing God. And so remember, he is gracious. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. 
Church, do not allow yourself to continue in anger against God in the midst of your struggles, but ask him to forgive. Is it possible to lament in reverence then, not be angry at God? Is it, is it even possible then to complain in humility? Of course it is. And that's what we're going to see over and over and over in the Psalms of lament. David did it. He did it in Psalm 6. He is our example of how to faithfully lament, the type of lamenting that leads to courageous petitions before God. See, this is where faithful lamenting differ in one more way than grumbling. Grumbling demands and assigns blame. Lamenting brings courageous petitions. Listen to the difference. Demands, assigns blame, courageous petitions. David petitions through this psalm. Again, verses 1 and 2. Rebuke me not, nor discipline me. Be gracious to me. Heal me. And then look with me at verses 4 and 5 at his petition. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of, my, of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Shul, who will give you praise? It's interesting how David petitions the Lord. He petitions the Lord to turn. He, he's actually asking God to turn and to do something different than what he has been doing. And I, and I wonder, how is it? How is it that David has so much courage as to look at God, Almighty God, and say, Oh Lord, turn. And the answer is given to us right there. It is because he is asking it on the ground of God's steadfast love. This is just amazing that he says that. God, I call on your steadfast love to sustain me and deliver me from the agony I am feeling. I know I cannot ask for deliverance on my own merit, on my own goodness, on my own righteousness, because I don't deserve, God, what I'm asking you for. But I am asking it on the merit of your steadfast love. And when we ask it on the merit of God's steadfast love, all of a sudden we can have courageous petitions. Because we're not asking on my merit, we're asking on his merit. How, how amazing that we can go and say, God, I'm asking this on the merit of your steadfast love. We see the same idea in Lamentations, which is a whole book of lament. And in chapter 3, we see a long lament, but eventually he comes to verse 21, and we see a change. He says, but this I call to Mind, you can all recite that. And therefore I hope the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. This is what David did. He remembered that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. 
And his mercies never come to an end. And therefore, he has a courageous petition to God based on that steadfast love that never ends. This is exceedingly great news for you and for me, church. Because he gives us an example. He shows us here that when we are in the midst of our trials, that we can do the same thing. If we had to petition God on our righteousness, we could never have faith that he would help us and sustain us and deliver us. But when we make our petition based on God's steadfast love that never ceases, now we can have hope that he will hear our prayers and that he will help us and that we can have trust, comforting trust in him. We see it, verses 8 to 10. There's a change in David. No longer is he lamenting. No longer is he drenching his couch with tears. Rather, he is boldly addressing his enemies, saying that they shall depart from him, be ashamed, be greatly troubled, that they shall turn back and be put to shame. David went from broken to bold, from falling apart to standing really strong. And the question is, what happened that brought about this change? What external circumstances changed? Nothing. <laughs> nothing that we are privy to. There's nothing that changed. We're not told of anything that happened to David there that brought about his change. But David was comforted by the fact that the Lord heard and accepted his prayer. Three times he says this. The Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. The obvious change from melancholy to trust, from overwhelmed I flood my bed with tears to a confident, depart from me, you workers of evil, came about not because of circumstantial change, church, but because God comforted him in the midst of his troubles. You see, when we are overwhelmed with grief and pain and sorrow and we go before God, there are only three outcomes. We can pray for relief from our calamity and God can change our circumstances and we can be happy. That's what we always hope for. Or we can pray for God to change our circumstances and he cannot do it. And then in pride, we can react in anger because we doubt him and we can be full of self-pity and we can grumble against God. Or we can pray for God to change our circumstances and he cannot change our circumstances, but in humility we can allow him to comfort our hurting, overwhelmed hearts in the middle of the fight, in the middle of 
of the calamity that did not change, we can experience peace. This is a vivid pattern in the Bible, friends. This is not just in the Psalms. We see the same thing happen in Habakkuk. Remember Habakkuk's well-known prayer? Though the fig tree shall not blossom, though all these things happen, yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Remember Hannah in 1 Samuel. She was in terrible agony. She was barren and she was made fun of. And she lamented. She went and she lamented so bad that Eli thought she was drunk. And she said, I'm not drunk. I'm pouring out my soul before the Lord. And she allowed the Lord to comfort her through Eli's words. Go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. And then we read, then she went on her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. What had changed? Nothing. She was still barren. She was still um, taunted and tormented by her husband's concubine. But she allowed God to comfort her heart while she was still in the midst of her amazing struggle of barrenness. Friends, I have to ask one more question we have to answer ourselves. When you suffer, when you face life's really difficult trials and experience pain and loss, are you willing to be comforted only when circumstances change? Will you only be happy when your child comes back? Can you only worship God in gladness when your spouse is saved? Will you only be content when your family member is healed? Or is it true for your life what we sang this morning? When the harvest time is over and I still see no fruit, I will wait for you. Church, we, we have to, we have to ask God to help us that we will not only be content and only have peace if circumstances change, but that we will have peace because he is a good God. I know the, the things that we pray for are for relief. We pray that our child will come back, our spouse would be saved. But church, there's a satisfaction in in knowing that God hears our prayers, that he accepts our prayers, that he hears our cries. Even though nothing changes, that is comforting to our souls because he is a mighty God. There is a satisfaction that is to be found when God reveals himself to us that is beyond even every change that we can imagine or ask for. Because the satisfaction would be God himself. It takes a lot of humility. It takes a lot of humility from us, which 
character like me, we struggle with. To allow God to comfort our hearts without seeing the relief that we are praying for. Because our hearts reflect what Asaph said in Psalm 77 when he said, my soul refuses to be comforted. Church, we cannot go to God with that attitude. My soul refuses to be comforted. Until you change my circumstances, I refuse to be comforted. No, church. We cannot harden our hearts against God when we do not see the physical manifestations of what we are praying for. Know this. God hears the sound of your weeping He hears your plea and he accepts your humble plea. That is great news for us. And when he chooses not to change the circumstances that you are in right now, it is because he is good to you in the midst of that. And I know that makes no sense when you feel like you're battered from every side. But he is a good and trustworthy God. And we can ask him, Lord, can you please give me calm while I'm being beaten from every side? I don't have to see the change before I can believe and have comfort in you. I know it is hard. I I don't know every one of your struggles. But I know, I know what it is like to suffer without seeing the answer of what I pray for. You probably do too. It's been three years now. It's been three very long years for us as a family. It's been three years that I've been praying that our daughter would repent and turn to the Lord. Three years I've been praying, Lord, save her and bring her back to us. I have not seen the evidence of that yet. And it is excruciating at times. But I can be comforted in knowing that God is a good God. Always. In every circumstance. Whether he, whether he does what I ask him to or not, he is good. He hears the sound of my weeping. He hears my pleas. And he accepts them. What grace. And so I pray these though and yet prayers like Habakkuk. Though I see no repentance yet. And though there is no evidence of restored relationship yet. And though I break on the inside every time I hear her voice for a few seconds on the phone. And though I have no assurance of restored relationship, really, yet I will exalt in the Lord. Yet I will rejoice in the God of my salvation because he is a good and trustworthy God because he sustains me with his steadfast love.
I don't struggle perfectly. I often ask God for his steadfast love to sustain me. As long as I have to endure this suffering and many other sufferings that you are all familiar with and that you, many of you struggle with also. Friends, I pray that when you experience pain and suffering and hardship and weariness, that you and I will learn to be able to say with David Brainerd, oh, this pleasing pain, it sounds so wrong when you're really in pain. Oh, this pleasing pain. And that we would learn to humbly approach God, humbly approach God, to faithfully lament to him, to make courageous petitions before him, and as a result, that we will be comforted by his steadfast love. It can happen, church. This is not just theoretical. God can do that for you and for me. Because he is a faithful God, because of his steadfast love, because he is good and holy and mighty and all-powerful, he can sustain us while we are in the midst of life's struggles. What grace. It cannot happen because of us, because we're strong. If it happens, it will happen only because of him, only because we have a clear picture of him, only because his steadfast love sustains us. May it be so for each one of us. Amen.